Welcome to Twill, another COVID-19 law and policy briefing produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, Change Lab Solutions, and the APHA Law Section. For more information on the COVID legal response, please check out our report, Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19. In that report, 50 national experts assess the the U.S. policy response and provide recommendations on how federal, state, and local leaders could better respond to COVID-19, as well as to future pandemics. You can find Volume 1 of our assessment at covid19policyplaybook.org, and Volume 2 will be published later this month. On Twitter, please use the hashtag COVIDLawBriefing for any questions or comments in response to this show. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law. Joining me today are Jill Kruger and Corey Davis of the Network for Public Health Law. In a recent piece for KFF, uh, Namita Panchal and colleagues reported that during the pandemic, concerns about mental health and substance use have spiked. During the pandemic, about four in 10 adults in the US US have reported symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorder, up from one in 10 adults who reported these symptoms from January to June in 2019. January 20 2021, 41% of adults reported symptoms of anxiety and or depressive disorder. In a survey from June 2020, 13% of adults reported new or increased substance use due to coronavirus-related stress, and 11% of adults reported suicidal ideation in the past 30 days. Early 2020 data show that drug overdose deaths were particularly pronounced from March to May 2020, coinciding with the start of pandemic-related lockdowns. The victims of these diseases come from all cohorts, but it's hardly surprising that researchers and policymakers are taking a hard look at groups such as adults experiencing food, financial or housing insecurity, homebound parents and children, communities of color, and essential workers, particularly health workers. Coming to you first, Jill, uh, according to an American Psychological Association survey, 74% of polled psychologists said that they were seeing more patients with anxiety disorders compared with before the pandemic. 60% said they were seeing more patients with depressive disorders. Yet these numbers are suspect because they only reflect persons who could find a treatment provider. Yet we've had several mental health parity laws, including provisions in the ACA, but frequently we're told that not enough is being done. Can you sort of lead us through the gaps in law and or policy with regard to access to mental health care? Sure. Thanks for for the question, Nick, and thanks for having me. I'm um, happy to be here with you today. And um, sure, what are some of the gaps in in terms of mental health parity? Well, some of the gaps are in the laws themselves. Um, What do the laws require? I mean, most of them at the federal and state level require that to the extent a private insurer covers physical health conditions, it should provide comparable coverage for mental health conditions. You know, often those determinations about to the extent, what counts as to the extent are are not very well defined. Um, So there are problems in the laws. And then there have been significant gaps in enforcement. I mean, uh, you know, the litigation takes a long time to get through the courts. Um, Sometimes they're decided on highly technical grounds. Um, But we do see some progress. Um, California on January 1st just started implementing a new law that expands uh, the, the number 
number and types of conditions that are covered, as well as the severity of the conditions that are covered by mental health care laws. Um, so previously, only serious uh, conditions had to be covered, but now even mild conditions are subject to mental health parity laws, which really expands the pool of eligible um, patients. Um, so that's that's one important um, piece of progress. Also, in terms of you know insurance insurers sort of judging for themselves, the California law says no, you need to refer to national clinical standards from the non you know from this specified nonprofit association, not sort of decide for yourself what's an adequate amount of treatment. Um, so those are some really important strides forward in the California state law, and I hope that um, sets the tone nationally. Um, but it's it's not just the mental health parity laws themselves. I mean, there have to be people to provide the mental health. Um, and we've got significant areas um, of provider shortages throughout the country, you know, rural, urban, uh, suburban, um, and particularly in um, psychiatry. There can be, you know, uh, the state of Wyoming, you know, I haven't checked the count recently. At one point, it was, you know, they had one or two psychiatrists in the state. Now, you know, primary care providers can uh, prescribe some basic um, psychoactive medications. Um, there's RXP in a handful of states where um, psychologists who undergo additional training are, are qualified to provide, make prescriptions. So there are some interventions there. But but really, in terms of policy solutions, we need more, you know, more of a provider pipeline. And it needs to be a more diverse provider pipeline, you know, more active recruitment among communities of color. We've seen in, in medical care, dental care, you know, real success with, with kind of mid-level providers. Perhaps we need something like that in mental health. I mean, certainly there are already, you know, a range of psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, you know, marriage and family therapists of, of various types across the states, but um, perhaps more use of that. Um, and I, I'm, when I talked about mental health parity laws, I talked primarily about private insurers, of course, Public insurers are really relevant to this discussion as well in terms of opening up access. Um, the Wellbeing Trust and Mental Health America really uh, recently did a really helpful report on EPSDT, um, the, the underutilization of EPSDT benefits with respect to mental health under Medicaid. And I think that's something that states ought to look at closely um, in terms of increasing access um, to those federal benefits. Every aspect of, uh, of our critique of, of, of healthcare at the moment and the pandemic reaction um, has merged with questions we have about equity generally and health equity in particular. And there do there's appear to be a strong literature with regard to um, black Americans uh, seeming to receive less and lower quality mental health care. Yeah, I mean, certainly, and and you're right on, Nick, that it's correlated with with other um, factors that that influence health. You know, including access to health insurance, but also, you know, are the providers that may be available in the community or available through telehealth, which is actually one of the advances we've made in terms of access to mental health care during the pandemic. But you have to have broadband. You know, do you have internet? Internet access, you know, in your home or in a place where you feel comfortable discussing mental health matters. Let's see, what what other thoughts? Do you have access to a culturally competent yep. provider? Uh, I mean, in mental health, that therapeutic relationship is at the core of, of success. And so, if your provider doesn't, if you feel that you don't, your your provider doesn't understand you, it's it's hard to make with, uh, progress with respect to mental health. And we shouldn't overstate this in the sense of of suggesting that African 
African-Americans in general experience worse mental health. I mean, there are many studies that have, have shown that because of protective factors, that experience of being, you know, actually that shared experience of experiencing racism, as well as sharing a common culture often creates protective factors. And there've been really interesting studies actually about, you know, the loss of access to the physical church community, uh, the impact that has had in African-American communities as, as a lost protective factor during the pandemic. And there have been worrying trends recently with respect to suicide among African-American youth that Congress has, has at least done some study with respect to. But yeah, it all goes back to basic economic inequalities and, and then the experience of racial trauma, as we've seen um, particularly in this last year. Oh, great points. Thank you. So, Corey, um, as I mentioned, overdoses have been increasing, um, but they were increasing before the pandemic. But notably, the CDC has identified a pretty sharp spike in overdose deaths during COVID, with research focusing on social isolation, cancellation of in-person recovery meetings, many other stresses. You've written extensively about the availability of treatment, particularly opioid agonist treatment. But in your work, you sharply criticize the OUD exceptionalism that treats people who use drugs and their medications differently from persons suffering from other chronic diseases. How do those barriers appear in our laws? What are the legal barriers to OAT that perpetuate these this sort of exceptionalism? And do they have any policy justification? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, I mean, so there are, there are a couple of questions there. I mean, as to where, I mean, so, so let's set the stage, right? So um, it is the case, unfortunately, <laughs> that it is harder to access the medications for you know, opioid use disorder treatment um, than the medications that in many cases drive the epidemic of opioid-related harm. Now, there are a lot of reasons that people come to develop problematic relationships uh, with opioids and other substances, but it is also clear that availability um, is a big drive, right? That um, it is the case that most people today who are um, dying of opioid-related causes, um, the opioids they're dying from are not prescription opioids, right? But it is also the case that we're seeing this bump of people who have opioid use disorder that was driven in large part from you know, over-prescribing of opioids that happened years ago, right? But, you know, so it is quite easy to be prescribed opioids for, for pain or other indications. It is quite difficult to be prescribed opioids that actually treat opioid use disorder. And we see this dichotomy, um, you know, most strikingly in the fact that the same medication uh, can be prescribed both for pain and for opioid use disorder treatment. Um, but when that medication is prescribed for pain, there are very few restrictions um, on who can prescribe it, who can receive it, the circumstances in which it can be prescribed, and so on. Um, but when that medication is prescribed for opioid use disorder treatments, um, there are a huge cascade of restrictions um, that apply. And we're mostly talking here about these two medications, buprenorphine and methadone. Um, and, you know, these restrictions are in place because of stigma. I mean, there's no other reason for it. Um, these restrictions were originally put in place you know, back in the 70s when methadone was first uh, approved. Um, 
for opioid use disorder treatments. And were, um, when buprenorphine was approved for opioid use disorder treatment in the early 2000s, it sort of carried forward. Um, and, you know, the restrictions are really ridiculous, honestly, for particularly for methadone maintenance treatment. Um, there are federal regulations that govern who can receive the medication, um, what needs to happen before a person can first receive it. They need to have a full in-person physical evaluation. Um, they need to come to the you know, medic. Methadone can only be received from certain federally approved treatment facilities, which are sometimes called NTPs or OTPs, but colloquially they're called methadones. Um, it's the only place that you can receive methadone for opioid use disorder treatment um, under federal law. Initially, you have come there every day. You have to wait in line. Somebody has to physically observe you take the medication um, and so on. Um, there are other restrictions um, on buprenorphine treatment. The big one being um, that providers um, who wish to prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder treatment have to take, most in most cases, have to take a special training to be able to do that. Um, it's an eight-hour training for physicians, 24-hour training for other providers. Um, and until they've done that, they can't prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder treatment, even though they can prescribe almost anything else, um, you know, any other approved medication. Um, and it just leads to this situation where there are lots of people who want to access opioid use disorder treatment um, who aren't able to do that. And, you know, uh, no, there's no <laughs> there's no policy justification. Um, it's it's rooted in, in stigma against people who use drugs, people with substance use disorders. Um, and that just, you know, it just carries forward. So uh, diversion is often thrown into the mix as, as or the fear of diversion is thrown into the mix here. Do you give that any uh, credibility? I mean, you know, so like, what does diversion mean? I mean, in in this context, it really means, you know, people who want to treat their opioid use disorder with the gold standard treatment for opioid use disorder, which is methadone and buprenorphine, who are not able to access that treatment through, you know, legitimate channels. You know, they aren't able to access a provider, they're uninsured or underinsured. So instead of purchasing the opioids um, that are going to, um, you know, get you high, that are going to, you know, give that euphoria, they are going out and trying to find these medications that just keep you stable. And that's what methadone and buprenorphine do. So when we're talking about diversion, you know, we're really talking about people who are trying to access the gold standard treatments, um, you know, um, that should be available to them, but, but isn't. You know, a person who is, um, you know, buying buprenorphine on the street is much, much safer. You know, that's much, much safer than a person who's buying any other opioid on the street. Um, you know, so, I mean, that's not, it's not an argument in favor of diversion per, per se, um, you know, but it's an argument in favor of ensuring that everyone who wants to access that treatment can do it through, you know, the legitimate system. So the second report that is about to come out from our group, which you contributed to, our great thanks. Um, uh, looks not just to sort of the end of COVID-19, if there ever, ever is an end, um, but um, also looking at sort of uh, creating a blueprint for for the future, uh, you know, sort of building better or whatever you like to say. So let's try and pivot in that direction, if we may. And, and Jill, the various sort of relief and stimulus packages of the last few months haven't ignored our mental health issues. Um, can you assess their sort of range and impact that we've see 
seen so far? And looking to the future, where do you think federal, state, tribal, local policymakers should pay the most attention in trying to do something about our mental health issues? You know, the, the first COVID relief um, acts, the FFCRA and the CARES Act, didn't have a lot related to mental health. There was some additional appropriation for suicide prevention. And, you know, the, the paid sick leave and family leave was a substantial, you know, in large part, I think, was really directed at mental health of, of working parents, particularly working mothers. Um, but that was, you know, it was two thirds of a person's pay if they had an eligible employer. And it lasted for 12 weeks and we're at a year. So the contribution there was was relatively small. Um, because under the Stafford Act, we had a national, a presidential declaration, not just of a public health emergency, but also of a, of a disaster. We did open up some funds under the Stafford Act for the crisis counseling program. Um, so states were able to tap into that. And, and SAMHSA certainly indicated um, much higher um, you know, call volumes um, to their distress hotlines. Um, so those, those, those were accessed. Um, but more recently, we're seeing a lot more attention um, at the federal level in the um, SIRSA, the uh, Coronavirus Response and Relief Supplemental Appropriations Act um, that was part of the Consolidated Appropriations in December, um, has really a historic investment in mental health at, at $4.25 billion. Um, although when you look then more closely at where is that money going, um, it goes into existing programs, which is, you know, of course, what Congress does. I mean, I, before I was a public health lawyer, I was an agricultural lawyer. And so when Congress is trying to respond quickly to a natural disaster, that's what it does as well. You, you pour money into an existing program. So in, in terms of mental health, that means things like um, community mental health block grants. It means things like substance abuse prevention and treatment block grants, certified community behavioral health clinics, um, as well as things like suicide prevention and the National, National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Um, so some of those buckets, I think, are more poised to serve, you know, to be of use at this time. I mean, some just needed shoring up, you know, pre-pandemic just to meet the needs with respect to community mental health. But a lot of that is it's for treatment of serious mental illness or emotional disturbance in, in children and isn't maybe sort of really well directed toward the kind of generalized anxiety and depression and, and frankly, post-traumatic stress, you know, or chronic stress that, that people are experiencing. So I think there's going to be work to do to the extent that, that you know, the federal government has flexibility to do notice and comment rulemaking and, and listening sessions to hear how these programs can be um, modified to better serve the current needs. I think that would be great. Um, and then there are, you know, I'm not sure how we're doing on time, but I can also talk about some, some state and tribal examples. Um, but that's sort of an overview of kind of federal federal dynamics. Very useful. So as, you know, as we were talking, Corey, COVID has made things worse for people who use drugs or many people who use drugs. Yet the emergency did create a sort of natural experiment to an extent in that um, the emergency orders brought with them some temporary relief from some of the legal restraints. Um, which ones would you maybe focusing on as examples of things that made things better, are making things better, and really uh, should survive the end of the emergency orders? Yeah, thanks, Nick. That's a good question. Yeah, so very briefly, the federal government 
government has eased some of these restrictions uh, related to accessing both buprenorphine and methadone. Um, in the buprenorphine context, the big one is a um, suspension of some requirements associated with this law called the Ryan Hayda, which generally requires that before a controlled substance is initially prescribed to a patient, um, the prescriber and the patient you know, develop a, an in-person relationship, right? And this law was passed to try to cut down on sort of these rogue internet pharmacies where people were, were ordering and having delivered controlled substances to them without, without legitimate medical need. That was waived uh, in connection with buprenorphine prescribing because, you know, it's much harder for people to have that initial interaction with a buprenorphine provider. You know, they're hard enough to come by in regular times. Um, you know, when COVID hit and it suddenly became much more difficult to actually, you know, go to, um, go to an office, that was waived. So that permits people to have that initial interaction, um, either, you know, initially just through an audiovisual link, you know, through something like we're doing here. And later the DEA used its uh, discretionary, you know, to use its discretion to permit that to happen via audio only. And there are a number of programs across the country that have used that to great effect um, to connect people who, um, you know, either can't come to a clinic because of COVID or just, you know, are unhoused or are sort of some, you know, have transportation issues, you know, for whatever reason, find it difficult to to make that initial appointment. They can, you know, talk with the provider over the phone or over video, get prescribed uh, buprenorphine and, you know, start on the gold standard treatment for for their condition. That clearly should continue um, after after the crisis. In the methadone context, um, some of the restrictions on having to come to the methadone clinic or the OTP every day were waived. Some people were permitted to get what we call take-home doses, you know, um, medication that you take yourself at home for a period of four weeks. Other people were permitted to do that for a period of two weeks. Um, that should also continue. Um, there is really no reason um, to require people to come to the, the clinic every morning to, to get their dosing. Um, and, you know, there's it's a huge barrier. It's very difficult to maintain, you know, any sort of a steady job. If six days a week, you know, you have to show up at a particular place, wait in line, get your medication. It's, you know, it can be sort of a dehumanizing experience. It is, you know, it is very stigmatizing. Um, everything about it is sort of stigmatizing. So that that should continue um, as well. You know, I think that there are also things that we should do in addition. We should get rid of this requirement that providers need to have some kind of special training to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, we should get rid of this requirement that methadone can only be prescribed and dispensed for opioid use disorder treatment at these specialized clinics. Um, you know, we should be normalizing opioid use disorder treatment. We should be making it much easier for people to access that treatment. Whereas now the entire federal regulatory regime is designed to make it more difficult to access opioid use disorder treatment than treatment for any other condition. That makes no sense. Um, you know, so we should you know, look at that systematically and get rid of all of those restrictions. Well, thank you. Well, time is uh, is not our friend as usual, um, but uh, in the couple of minutes we've got left, I mean, if I had any uh, graphic skills, I would have taken the two chapters, well, I guess now over two volumes, the four chapters that, that you've written um, and made a nice Venn diagram um, that would sort of show the overlap of the cohorts, 
that you, you research and write about um, underlying social determinants, the way these cohorts tend to be underserved by a healthcare system, uh, the exacerbation of these issues in rural communities, and so on and so forth. A minute each or 45 seconds each, is there anything in the Biden-Harris administration's playbook or in the record of the assumed new Health and Human Services Secretary, Becerra, that sort of give you cause for optimism? Well, I think one cause for optimism is that there seems to be a, a, a describing objective reality, like describing things that appear to be based in facts. Like there is a pandemic, there has been social and economic disruption, there is structural racism, there is climate change. All of that seems hopeful in that it matches the facts. Um, and to the extent that personnel is, is policy, I mean, Nominee Becerra has a record on human rights, on equity, um, on health. And then I would point to, to people like um, Surgeon General nominee Vivek Murthy has written a book called Together that's about restoring um, connectedness, which is critical, I, I think, to, to mental health, as well as the focus on basic needs of, of the current administration. And then one final note I would make is that when, when the initial COVID task force was named and the health equity task force was named, um, there was some murmuring that there didn't seem, you know, other than, than uh, Murthy, there didn't seem to be a lot of folks with a, a mental health perspective. And the administration has recently named um, Dr. Octavio um, Martinez of the Hogg Foundation in Texas, which is committed to work on mental health, at work at the intersection of mental health and health equity, and has been leading a campaign um, for um, declarations of racism as a mental health. There's both the policy perspective and the personnel perspective, and I think there's some reason for hope, and that's one of the core principles of mass trauma response right there. Is so, so Corey, in, in, in your half glass full, what, is, there, is there anything of note? Yeah, no, I mean, I do agree with everything that, that Jill said. I mean, from where I'm sitting, the federal policy and state policy regarding people who use some drugs is so terrible that, um, you know, almost anything is an improvement. Um, yeah, I mean, when Mr. Becerra was Attorney General of California, he signed on to an amicus brief in support of supervised consumption spaces, for example. So there is some evidence that he is, you know, that he kind of gets it. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, the larger structural issue here is that federal and state policy is designed to view a lot of drug use as a criminal legal issue. You know, instead of offering people, you know, treatment, um, our first, you know, the system is set up to arrest, prosecute, and incarcerate them. You know, there is nobody at the federal level, certainly not Merrick Garland, who is saying that system makes no sense. It's racist. It's classist. It's harmful from a public health standpoint. We need to dismantle it entirely. Um, you know, nobody is saying, which to me are very obvious things like that. But I think that the, you know, the nominees and um, whoever is, is chosen, I think, will be incrementally better um, than, than the status quo. And, um, you know, that's good. And I think advocates are going to continue pushing for the changes that we actually need. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, you know, hopefully we'll get there eventually. And one of the treats of this job is is to uh, hear tweets actually being spoken. So, Corey, it's not needle exchange, it's 
how I think I think I, I think I tweeted something to the effect that we, we don't need syringe exchange, we need syringe access. Yep, that's how I remember it. Well, thank you to my guests and to all of you listening today, to our producers, Faith Kalik and Liz Voiles. For the next few weeks, we're going to be broadcasting here on Twitter every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. Just go to at P-H-L-A-W-A-T-C-H or search hashtag COVID law briefing. Recordings are available on the Public Health Law Watch website, and the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twill.com. We'll see you next time. Please wear a couple of masks, distance yourself, stay safe, and as soon as possible, get vaccinated. Cheers.